So our next speaker is going to be Alan Freeman. He's the co-director with Radhika Desai of the Geopolitical, Geopolitical Economy Research Group at the University of Manitoba. He was an economist at the Greater London Authority between 2000 and 2011, where he held the brief, um, where he held the brief for the creative industries and the living wage. Um, he wrote the the Ben Heresy, a biography of British politician uh, Tony Ben, and co-edited three books on value theory. He is honorary life president of the UK-based Association for Heterodox, Heterodox Economics and a vice chair of the World Association for Political Economy. So, Alan Freeman. Alan, go ahead. Thank you so much, Brandon, for organizing this. And it's a real pleasure to be an honor to be on this panel with the other speakers. Now, I have decided to call the experience of the Russian special military operation a 1914 moment. And I want to explain why. It's because I think we can learn from history. As Santiana says, those who do not learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. Now, one lesson in particular stands out because I think we're often uh, prone to feel that we're in some strange way besieged because we're a small number of people. And I want to point out that the true victors in 1914, which were the Bolsheviks, were entered the war as a tiny group, but they came out on the side of history. And that's because they understood what was going on. So I do think understanding is a critical thing that we need. Now, the world of 2022 is more complicated. Beside the capitalist countries and socialist movements, it contains socialist countries and fascist movements. Nevertheless, we should study history because not to make superficial analogies, but to study similar events. And that means identifying common causes. So the most important similarity was the political collapse of the so-called socialist left. And in 1914, this was very strong. In Germany, it's reported there were 27 daily social democratic newspapers, it had a world organization, mass trade unions, huge socialist parties. When the war broke out, these parties unanimously, I think the only exception with the Serbians actually, supported their own capitalist. Now, why is this important? Because of Marx's basic lesson, only the working class can liberate humanity because its members own nothing but their labor power. But this only makes it a class in itself. To realize its potential, it must become a class for itself. It must act politically. And it can only do this if it acts on behalf of everybody who shares its condition, not just some of them. Now, in 1914, the socialists decided it was more important to kill other workers than fight their own capitalists. At that moment, the working class in the imperialist countries stopped acting as a class. This is an exact parallel. What do the pro-imperialist left tell us? That let's, let's cut to the chase. It's more important to kill Russian workers than fight Western capitalists. And this is completely naked. The enemy is not anymore Putin or the oligarchs. It's now the Russian people, down to its tennis players, its composers, and Ukraine's Russian speakers. A third of the population besieged, bombed, and brutalized for eight years by these wonderful Ukrainian nationalists about which our leftist friends say nothing. Now then, as now, there's been a political collapse, but only in the West. 
And I think that's very important to understand. We're not isolated. To the contrary, five-sixths of the world is with us. And that's one of the things that's got the... Uh, the uh, the propaganda machine so running so scared, in my opinion, to the point where they're actually deceiving themselves with their own propaganda, which is, in a perverse way, a useful thing. The First World War was the cradle of colonial revolt. It provoked the Easter Rising. It consolidated Indian nationalism's mass base. It launched Kemalism, Pan-Arabism. It gave birth to African anti-colonialism. Now, today, this polarization is more advanced not even India or Saudi Arabia have joined the attack on Russia. And this brings me to a basic point. Imperialism is economic, not political in character. And in the uh, version of this text, which I placed on my academia site, you'll see two charts and they basically show what happened to Russia after shock therapy. And I recommend to you a book by Ruslan Zarasov, which explains the structure of Russian capitalism. It was brutally reduced to the status of the global South. It's estimated that between three and 10 million people died in Russia because of shock therapy. That was an economic battle against the gains of that had been made through the Russian, through, through the Soviet experience. So what the imperialist countries do is they did to Russia what they were doing to the rest of the world, and they use this to buy off their own workers. They give them a higher standard of living, they integrated their leaders into the state, and they created professional subclasses that depend on state largesse forging a popular base that kept them in the power. These bribes, I think somebody's unmuted and is drinking, I can hear it. They come from surplus profit. This is income squeezed out of five-sixths of the world. And it's achieved by a world division of labor, which confines the global South to export minerals, agricultural goods, and the products of such cheap labor, while subjecting it to a Northern high-tech monopoly. This was particularly clear in the treatment on Huawei, which was imposed because socialist China, frankly, had better tech. So all the free trade talk went out the window. Now, to put this in perspective, let me give you a simple fact. US GDP per capita is 40 times higher than India. Now, in Marxist terms, that's very simple. The labor of one US worker exchanges for the labor of 40 Indian workers. In short, the USA, Europe and Japan are living off the labor of the world working class. Now, this leads me to my second contribution, being a uh, second greatest contribution of Marx, being determines consciousness. Western socialists, so-called, capitulated then as now because of their material relation to the worker of the world. And this gives them a false consciousness, very simply described, they think they are superior, exactly as Ajamu has so eloquently described it. The origin of white supremacy is the notion that because we're richer, we must be smarter. That's it. It's a material cause. And this gives them the right to tell everybody else what to do. Actually, they're just robbers. They can't admit that. Nobody could say, oh, I'm, I'm a robber and proud, right? The, the, you know, maybe Al Capone, but that's about it, right? So they have an, a myth, which I call the Colombian myth system, and this substitute for rationality. There's, there's no rationality in the discourse of the West anymore. I don't know why it perceives itself as, a, as, as, the, as the, you know, the, the, the birthplace of reason when, it, when it's acting like the most insanely... Um, insanely uncivilized uh, group of people the world has ever seen.
So China actually, so what they do then is they racialize it. They geneticize it. They, they have to say, why, are the, why is the rest of the world worse off than us? Because they must be inferior. And this is projected onto its own population of immigrants, people of color. They must be the uh, racial consequence of this world inferiority. That's the root of hubristic racism of, this, of the North. And I must say in passing, this is one reason I do have profound doubts about however well-meaning what's called patriotic socialism. In my opinion, the most, we can discuss this by the way, the most far-sighted US leaders like Malcolm X understood that their oppression at home was the result of piracy abroad. So the best hope for US workers is to make common cause with everyone their government is bombing and starving. So I don't, I find it hard to call that patriotic. Now I'm gonna to turn to what I think is the most important difference between 1914 and now, and that is fascism. And I think the left is, if anything, more confused on this than about imperialism. Yet fascism is fast emerging as the greatest modern threat to humanity. And we better wise up to it. Wake up and smell the ziklon. And why did that happen? Again, this is a, histor a historical thing. Fascism was born directly out of the Soviet victory. Up until then, it, the, the revolutionary wave of 1918 swept away the old order, the, the dynastic empires, Austria-Hungary, the Romanovs and the Ottomans. Now, until then, the European bourgeoisie basically used landed classes like the Prussian Junkers to suppress the working class. And it itself was small enough that it didn't always command a popular majority. After 19, country after country had to concede suffrage, deal with social demands, inspired by the 1917 revolution. So imperialist strategy was then very straightforward to divide the working class. And it did this by, it, it needed working class movements that would take its side. Now in times of wealth, when it was doing well, it could rely on social democracy. But now, and in times of decay, it has to call on fascism. This was obscured by the post-1945 reconstruction of social democracy, but it rested on two conditions. The US warfare state had unleashed a new wave of capitalist expansion, and it was forced to defend its vassals against a new wave of revolutionary change. It had to tolerate the welfare state, which it hates. It is now, you know, uh, as soon as it had got rid of the Soviet Union, it, 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 it launched a full frontal assault on it. There's a connection between those. It created buffer states in Germany, Japan, South Korea. But it could only do this when it had the wealth, which is now being exhausted, and it turns to fascism. What is fascism? It's a pro-capitalist working class movement organized to suppress the working class. To do this, it constructs a national identity or a religious identity that claims that one part of the working class is superior to the rest. It injects the racism that is already implicit in the imperial relationship to the rest of the world into its own country. So I think therefore a very profound error has to be dealt with among the left. And this is to suppose that these movements are working class just because workers support them. And we've seen this, this confusion around, uh, around the, the, the convoy and things like that. I think it's utterly wrong. 
every imperialist country had mass working class support when it was at war with other imperialist countries. Hitler and Mussolini had millions of working class supporters. What determines the fascist character of a movement is its political objective. So I also think it's very wrong, and we have to start thinking about how to deal with this, to say that the hallmark of fascism is anti-Semitism. So you get all these people saying uh, Zelensky and the Azov Battalion, they cannot be, uh, they cannot be fascists because Kolomoisky is Jewish, Zelensky is Jewish. No, the characteristic of fascism, of course, anti-Semitism was its most horrific expression. I'm no way denying that, but fascism can seize on any target. Who is that target today? Russian people. That's the target of the new wave of fascism, of the new genocidal rhetoric we're seeing that, that is directed against all Russians and not against not just against you know, so-called Russian dictators. So what do we need? I'm going to conclude on this. I don't know how much longer I've got. Uh, looks like I've got a couple of minutes. Okay, like three, we need three, three minutes on. That's beautiful. So we now need, in my opinion, a new socialism of the global north. That's our task. That's what this small group of people here, just like the small group of Bolsheviks, and there's of course small groups of people who are not in this room who have equally uh, wonderful, you know, uh, ideas. But they have to create a new, a new. So we have to work together to create a new socialism that can work with China, Russia, and the global South to recreate the international unity that the old socialists destroyed in 1914. And Marx gives us a double start point. He first of all said, "No nation that enslaves another can ever itself be free," which means Ukraine will never be free as long as it oppresses its Russian and other linguistic minorities. And then he said, labor in the white skin cannot emancipate itself with a black skin skin is branded. So labor in the imperialist countries has a double obligation. Abroad, it must defend the workers of the world against their own capitalists. And at home, it must advance the cause of the whole working class above all the oppressed, who are not only the chief target of fascism, but generally speaking, the most politically advanced. That is, we need a world working class alliance against imperialism and fascism. So I'm going to make a few concluding remarks that I may not finish. First of all, I think that we can no longer define this movement by rejecting what is called reformism. I think that's an old polarization we should get rid of. Some of the most revolutionary uh, leaders of the post-war, of the pre-First World War period were also the people who capitulated first to imperialism. Ferdinand Lassalle in Germany, Hindman in Britain, who violently supported the British in the Boer War. They were examples of this, you know, basically social patriotism. And they were, they were the most extreme revolutionaries. Uh, Hindman led the British Socialist Party out of the Labour Party because he said it didn't engage in enough class struggle. Yet he was the first to betray. So I think we have to get rid of this idea that reformism is our distinguishing point. No, what, what's our distinguishing point is intransigence. We don't give up. We stick by our guns, especially in defending the global south. The second point, I think there is a far right sniping criticism of woke culture. And this permeates also the left. I think this has no place in our movement. The working class can only unite if it defends everyone oppressed by its capitalists. I think the historic response to George Floyd's murder was absolutely fundamental because it was dawning on young white Americans that they were no better off than the descendants of slaves. 
This has laid the foundations of a future American socialism worthy of the name. If you cast that understanding away, you kick open the door to fascism. I make a final point, which is just really for something to discuss. I think a historic mistake was made when the Communist International was wound up in 1944. It wasn't anything to write home about, but it basically condemned the communists to exist only in their national context when you had this constant drip, drip pressure uh, on them because they don't encounter the views of other people like in the global south. So I think that we need a, a new international organization is needed. And this will be, I, I'm not saying we should do it. I'm just saying we should get a discussion going about it. I think this will be very different from any past international and hopefully it won't be called the sixth international. You know, let, let's give it a different name and stop the sequencing, but it is needed. And although I'm not saying we're gonna launch it, I think one of the reasons we wrote the manifesto was to send a message to all the defenders of international working class unity that they should join together and give organized shape to that unity, which will take the form of international political organizations. Um, that's it, I posted this on, uh, on, on academia. Um, I put a number of links to reading and sources that you may, I hope, find useful. And, um, and uh, I'm, again, thank you very much. And one last plug, please give us money. Without that, oh without that, <laughs> There will be no international units because we won't be there, folks. I'm Michael Hudson. I'm appearing here for the International Manifesto Group. If you like this video and want to like it, please subscribe. For more information, go to the address on the screen.